Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Yeah, the new gender order speaks to a kind of queered manhood and queered womanhood. And really, it all kind of blends down into one androgynous gender smoothie. The majority of women who are post-abortive say that they would have kept their child had they had the emotional and financial resources to do so. So we need to speak to her and we need to support her. It's really become a cacophony of bizarreness within evangelicalism in the NAR as they try to out-Jewish each other in kind of resurrecting and trying to smuggle into Christianity practices that are Jewish. See, the Creator has established an order, and it's our job to honor it. So the pastor stands in the stead of the head. The head is male. This is not because we're anti-woman. It's because we're pro-Christ. Farmers in South Dakota listen to issues, etc., while combining our corn and feeding the world. Whether it is gender, race, class, your ethnic heritage, whatever it is, critical theory has been and is being used to divide us and to essentially isolate all of us. And it's very, very good at doing that. Why? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. on this Monday afternoon, October the 9th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be talking about critical theory, gender, race, and class with Dr. Neil Shenvey, author of the new book, Critical Dilemma. Then in hour two, we'll play an interview. Then in hour two, we'll replay an interview with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever on Praying the Psalms. Dr. Neil Shenvey is a married father of four children. He has a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Princeton and a Ph.D. in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley. He's Challenge 3 teacher with Classical Conversations and co-author of the new book, Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories in Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. Dr. Shemby, welcome. Hi, Todd. Thank you so much. Many Christians look at our woke cultural situation as just kind of an incoherent collapse of Western civilization. How do you respond to that? I'd say they have to really understand the deep ideological roots that lie behind and in back of all the woke stuff we see in culture. It's actually not incoherent. It's part of a deeply coherent and comprehensive worldview. What about those who say it's mere political sparring? Here again, I think they're missing that there's something behind all of the political sparring. Certainly, it's a fight between, say, progressives and conservatives, between Republicans and Democrats. But behind that, political infighting is actually a set of ideas that's captured large segments of our culture, including academia. It's been around for decades. What is contemporary critical theory? So critical theory traces its roots back to Karl Marx and the Frankfurt School in the 1920s and 30s in Germany. So they coined the term critical theory. But since then, critical theory has taken off and spawned entire disciplines like post-colonial studies, critical race theory, queer theory, critical pedagogy, intersectional feminism. And so what you see today, critical theory is an, is an umbrella category that encompasses various critical social theories. And we give the term contemporary critical theory as a, a label to describe a set of four 
important ideas that undergird all of these critical social theories and then also show up in these expressions of wokeness we see in our culture. What are those four ideas? So the first one is the social binary. This is the idea that society is divided into oppressor groups and oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, age, religion, nationality. So the social binary says everybody can be categorized either in an oppressor group, that's whites, men, heterosexuals, Christians, the able-bodied, or they're at a part of an oppressed group. Those are people of color, women, LGBTQ people, the disabled, and so on and so forth, non-Christians. So everybody falls into one of those two categories or maybe multiple categories. So you can be intersectionally oppressed if you're, say, black lesbian, or you can be intersectionally privileged if you're, say, a straight white male. So that's the first idea. The second big idea is called hegemonic power. It's so again, big phrase, but what does hegemonic power refer to? It refers to the way that the ruling class, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals or Christians, impose their values and their norms and their rules on culture to justify their own privilege and power. So according to critical theory today, say men would oppose their values on culture, and that's called the patriarchy, and that affirms the value of men at the expense of women or white people would, would express their values through white supremacy, and it would valorize whites at the expense of people of color. So that's how people are oppressed, not only through cruel and unjust treatment or through tyranny, but even more fundamentally through these ideas and norms that have become so widespread in our culture, they're taken for granted. So we don't see the white supremacy, we don't see patriarchy, we don't see heterosexism, we just see quote unquote normal everyday reality. So we're all blinded to these uh, hegemonic powers in these systems. So then how do you escape that? The third idea is lived experience. So we escape the tyranny of hegemonic power, of these oppressive norms and values through our lived experience as a person of color or as a, a woman or as an LGBTQ person. If you're part of an oppressed group, you can learn to see through these values and realize they're just arbitrary expressions of white power, of male privilege, and so you can achieve what's called a critical consciousness or a liberatory consciousness. And colloquially, you get woke. You wake up to reality. And then that gives you authority to speak your truth about social injustice, about racism, sexism, heterosexism, transphobia, in a way that gives you inherent authority. Finally, the idea of social justice says that we should be working to tear down systems and structures that perpetuate the social binary. So we're aiming for a state of diversity, equity, and inclusion where all people are equal and where all people have access to power and resources and where all groups share power. There's no one oppressive hegemonic discourse. So those are the four ideas at the heart of all these different movements at the heart of critical race theory, queer theory, intersectional feminism, and all those different ideas. What is the appeal of contemporary critical theory? Yeah. So a lot of people, especially conservatives, look out at the culture and they say, this looks crazy. Everyone's at each other's throats. There's the cancel culture is out of control. People, everyone's racist. Everyone's sexist. Everyone feels like they're being oppressed. How can that be palatable? How, why do people get sucked into the woke movement? There are many answers. One, critical theory appeals to our good and natural, and I even say God-ordained sense to protect the vulnerable. We do rightly want to protect those who are powerless. They can't help themselves. The Bible actually commands that as a good thing. But critical theory really preys upon that impulse and perverts it and makes us think that, one, that people who are not actually oppressed 
can claim to be oppressed and therefore deserve our protection. And number two, people that actually are innocent of oppressing other people are seen because of their social location, because of their race, class, or gender to be oppressors. So it captures a proper impulse, a biblical impulse to protect the vulnerable and yet twists it in a very dangerous way. Another reason I'd say is actually spiritual. And this is probably the main reason. Ever since the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve have been trying to hide our shame. As human beings, we're all tainted by sin. We've all been stained. We all have feelings of guilt. And ever since Adam and Eve, we've been trying to cover those feelings with fig leaves. And critical theory today provides a very efficient way of covering up our nakedness. Because if we retweet the right tweets, if we vote for the right political parties, if we go to the right rallies, we put the right hashtags on our tweets, we, then we can know that we're righteous. Then we can feel good about ourselves. We're on the right side of history. We're not like those people, the bigots, the murderers, the thieves, the, the 1%. So it sets up this very Manichaean dichotomy between the forces of light and the forces of darkness, where the forces of light are the progressives, the people who are woke, and the forces of darkness are the oppressors, those who are still blinded by their privilege. So it gives you a purpose. You feel like you're doing something, you have meaning, you have a set of values, and, and more than anything, you feel like you're better than others. Now, of course, we know as Christians, one that's a deeply human impulse. We all feel that way, the need to be clothed, to be safe, to be good, to be righteous. So we don't scoff at that impulse. We say, hey, friend, you're missing the real cleansing that only Jesus can provide. And you're actually looking for the righteousness that is from God by faith. You're trying to make it for yourself, and that's deadly. Why focus on the church and then society secondarily? Well, my co-author Pat and I are primarily concerned about the inroads that critical theory is making in the church were Christians. So Christians are called to be salt and light to the society. Now, of course, we do care about what happens in our society. We live in the culture like everyone else. We live in the United States. We are concerned about having good, just laws. We care about how our children are being educated, what they're being exposed to. We care about all of that. And yet our primary call as Christians is to be a holy people. We don't expect non-Christians to be a holy, special people because they have to first come to Christ. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we want to make sure that we're thinking properly and biblically about all these issues. And that starts with recognizing first, then challenging these deeply poisonous ideas that are brought in by critical theory. What are the various branches of contemporary critical theory and where do we see them manifest today? So if you look at those four core ideas, you can understand those four big assumptions, social binary, hegemonic power, lived experience, and social justice. Take those four ideas in the broad critical tradition, and if you apply them to race, you get roughly critical race theory. If you apply them to gender and sexuality, you get queer theory. If you apply them to teaching and education, you get critical pedagogy. If you apply them to imperialism and colonialism, you get colonial studies. So if you understand those four big ideas, you can see how they're applied in these various sub-disciplines of the critical tradition. Now, the two biggest disciplines that are influencing our culture today at large are critical race theory and queer theory. So it's those four ideas applied to race, and then those four ideas applied to gender and sexuality. So those are the ways that we see those ideas expressed, but it should be emphasized that all of these sub-disciplines, whether it's post-colonial studies, a critical pedagogy, feminism, they're all interrelated. And over the last 
three or four decades, they've cross-pollinated. So the ideas of, say, critical race theory show up today also in queer theory. And queer theory's ideas show up in critical race theory. And critical pedagogy employs all these ideas from critical race theory and queer theory to teach young people. So you can't really seal them off in separate boxes. They interpenetrate. And actually, if you read the literature, we have examples of showing you that if you read a text on critical race theory, it will explicitly bring in gender, sexuality, it'll cite queer theorists. If you if you read a critical a queer theory text, it'll cite critical race theorists and say, hey, these are basically cousins. They're all under the same umbrella. But I think if you look at the culture at large, you definitely see two predominant critical theories, which are critical race theory and queer theory. So where did this come from? Where did contemporary critical theory come from? You mentioned the Frankfurt School. Yeah. So if you go back really far, you can say, can you go back to Hegel? Can you go back even farther? Maybe. But pretty much Karl Marx is recognized as the first quote unquote true critical theorist, not because of his ideas about economics and money, but because of his ideas about power. So Marx was trying to understand how power operates to create winners and losers, to create oppressors and the oppressed. And he was striving to achieve liberation for the working classes, for the proletariat. So Critical theory began formally with the Frankfurt School, and they were Marxists, that's true, but they were trying to apply Marx's ideas more broadly than just to economics and class. They wanted to apply those ideas to things like the culture industry and mass media. So they were both an amendment to and a response to a critique of Marxism, classical Marxism. And then that was, again, that was years ago. But throughout the critical tradition, you see this emphasis on understanding how power works to create oppressors and the oppressed, to stratify society, to create the rich and the poor, to create groups with power, without power. And all they've done is they've applied those, that same framework to different axes of identity, race, class, gender, sexuality, and so forth. And you can trace the literature. It goes back. We're talking about, we're not talking about a single, singular stream, a tightly defined tradition. We're talking about a sort of like a river that they're all flowing into the, you know, out of the, the headwaters of Marxism, but into today. And like I said, they cross-pollinate. You'll have queer theorists citing critical race theorists. You'll have critical pedagogy employing the methods of critical race theory. So I think people make a mistake of just saying, oh, it's, it's just all Marxism. And actually, one of the interesting points is that I talked about how the Frankfurt School, it was an extension of and an amendment to Marxism. One of the things Marx thought was that the base produced the superstructure. The base was all of the economic arrangements, who controlled the means of production, who owned the factories, basically, that all of those economic facts produced culture. They produced religion. They produced morality. So if you wanted to change society's morality or religion or culture, you had to change the base. So all the other stuff was just a sort of a byproduct or largely a byproduct of the economic arrangements. Well, critical theory in the 30s flipped that on its head and said, actually, no, the superstructure of ideas and culture, it can also influence the base. It can influence who has resources. And then I'd argue today it's almost completely inverted. So a lot of the idealist strand of, say, critical racery would say that what's primarily important are the ideas. Those ideas are what then determine who has money in society and privilege. So when you just blithely say it's all just Marxism, a critical theorist could respond, actually, it's the opposite of classical Marxism. They've turned those ideas on their head. I think it's a little hair splitting, but the bottom line is that it's, it's not as easy to say, oh, it all just goes back to Marx. 
We're talking with Dr. Neil Shenvey, co-author of the new book, Critical Dilemma, about critical theory, gender, race, and class. When we return, how did we get categories like white privilege and intersectionality? Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. In a child's life, meaningful relationships matter when it comes to academic development and spiritual nurture. In Lutheran schools, students know they are uniquely and wonderfully made in God's image. Each day in over 1,800 Lutheran schools, children experience a rich, academic, loving, and Christ-centered environment where they can explore and develop their God-given talents and abilities. To find a Lutheran school near you, visit lcms.org schools. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Pumpkin spice flavored everything is in the air. It's the perfect time of year to curl up with a nice warm beverage using one of Ad Crusom's mugs, featuring your favorite Lutheran symbols, Bible verses, or Christian humor. For example, Jesus' personality type is INRI. St. Paul is the patron saint of the run-on sentence. And of course, chancel culture is practiced here. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. The Gospels report Jesus saying some rather shocking things. For instance, in Luke 14, he tells his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say such things? What about some of the other more difficult teachings of Scripture? Do you have questions about them? Well, we answer many of these in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pick up your copy today at cph.org slash witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Dr. Neil Shenvey is our guest. We're talking critical theory, gender, race, and class. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Shenvey, how did we get these categories like white privilege and intersectionality? So those two terms, technically white privilege was coined by Peggy McIntosh, who's a feminist scholar in 1989. So it's not technically coming from critical race theory, although it's obviously been folded in to critical race theory. Intersectionality is a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a critical race theorist, writing papers in 1989-1990. But where they come from, I think we do have to look back a little bit at the origins of critical race theory. So the civil rights movement was a response to America's sordid history of racism and slavery. There was slavery in this country for two and a half centuries, maybe three and a half centuries, you go back far enough, followed by the Black Codes and Jim Crow. So you have you know, roughly two to three and a half centuries of legitimate oppression of blacks, mainly and other people of color. So the civil rights movement, thank God, did actually correct a lot of those true injustices and sought to get rid of racially unjust laws. And that was wonderful. We should praise God for that. But there was still progress to be made, obviously, socially. And what critical race theory did in the 80s and 90s was they actually questioned the very premises on which the civil rights movement was based. So critical race theorists 
are not aiming for a colorblind country. They're not aiming for a meritocracy. They're not aiming for procedural justice. They want to question the very roots of the Enlightenment order, as they call it, the roots of liberalism, even the roots of rights discourse. So critical race theorists would question the reality of civil rights, which is sort of the fundamental premise of the civil rights movement. So basically, critical race theory arose out of a challenge to the fundamental premises of the civil rights movement. They want to challenge racism, they would say, but they also want to challenge this liberal order that undergirded so much racial progress that we actually made. And so that's how you get to ideas like white privilege, which says that actually whites have this unearned advantage in all social situations that comes from this power, this invisible power structure that they don't see. And we can only really see it through appealing to the lived experience of people of color who are marginalized. Or intersectionality would say that people are not just their race or just their gender, that both race and gender contribute to create a very complex identity and experience. So a black woman is not merely the same as a black man plus a white woman, she's something entirely different. So Kimberly Crenshaw will write very clearly that say you cannot consider race or gender in isolation. You have to consider race and gender together, not only race and gender, but also sexuality and class status and physical ability. This is how you get this framework that spans all possible identity markers. How do these ideas apply in queer theory? So queer theory roughly began in the early 90s. It's hard to say exactly when. Probably the most important queer theorist was Judith Butler. He's still alive today. And queer theory, it is the heir of numerous other movements before it, of feminism, of the gay rights movement in the 60s and 70s. And you could argue it does also trace its roots to these critical traditions like postmodernism, as of from the 60s and 70s, people like Foucault and Derrida. So those three broad traditions came together to produce queer theory. The fundamental idea behind queer theory is dismantling all gender and sexual norms. So they would believe that the gender binary, say, the idea that there are male and a female, that idea itself is oppressive and it's a social construct. There is no male and female biologically, metaphysically, they're certainly not God-ordained categories. And they want to show that those categories were created by human beings, and specifically that those categories are oppressive. They force gender non-conforming people to fall into this very rigid and arbitrary gender binary, and they want to dismantle that sexuality too. They would say that heterosexism is, is a system that perpetuates the privilege of, of straight people that we should be free to pursue any kind of sexuality we feel like at the moment. But it's broadly speaking, a deconstruction of all norms surrounding gender and sexuality, and more deeply, a deconstruction of all norms. So one of the very troubling aspects of queer theory that we highlight in our book is that queer theorists today will be very open about the ongoing discussion of age within queer theory. So they will say things like the question of whether They call it intergenerational sex. We would call it pedophilia. Whether that is ethical is an open question that's hotly discussed within queer theory. And many queer theorists will be advocating for uh, the abolition of age of consent laws because they want to give children, minors, even little children, sexual freedom. They want to liberate them from this arbitrary construction that they are somehow sexless and innocent when actually children should have the right to choose for themselves if they have sexual partners at any age. And again, that there are, of course, 
even uh, queer theorists and LGBTQ people who thinks that's appalling that they exist. And yet the debate does exist. And we quote many queer theorists who would say, no, this is also another norm that has to be dismantled. What insights from critical social theory are actually legitimate? Yes, you hear all the things I said about, say, critical race theory and queer theory, and you think, how on the earth could you talk about the positive insight? That's appalling. And I understand that, absolutely. I mean, we argue throughout the book that these ideas are fundamentally false, poisonous, and radically unbiblical. So don't get us wrong, we are against them. But we have to ask, why are they attracted to so many people? And part of that is because they get at certain elements of truth and the poison is intermingled with truth and that makes it all the more toxic. So it's important for us, if we're critiquing these ideas, to also be able to explain to people what they get right and makes them attractive and also all the more dangerous. So for example, simple example is critical race theory rightly states that race is a social construct. That's correct. The Bible says, you know, there's one race, the human race. From one man, God created all men. So we would, as Christians, say absolutely. The categories of black, white, Asian, these are socially constructed. And if you go to other countries, they don't have a category for Asian or well, I go to Brazil, right? Everyone there is brown. They have their own buckets they put people into, granted, but they don't have the same buckets as us. Well, that shows you that race is a social construct. And there are other ways you can argue for that. Of course, ancestry, you know, some people's ancestors came from Africa, some came from Ireland, some came from Yugoslavia. Sure, but those buckets of putting all, say, all Indians and all Chinese people and all Japanese people, all Indonesians, they're all just Asian to Americans. Well, that's silly. It's not reflective of their culture, of their history, of their ancestry. So we can recognize that critical race theory is right when it says that race is something that we have constructed and it largely came out of like the 17th and 18th centuries as scientists tried to understand how people can fit into this racial hierarchy they created. So critical race theory is correct in that regard. Another example, queer theory. You think queer theory sounds so awful. Well, queer theorists will rightly highlight the existence of intersex people. This is very rare conditions where babies are born that don't fit neatly into externally into categories of male or female. So they're they're born with the doctors can't really tell whether they are male or female by external appearance. So they have to do blood tests, basically. So there are about one in 2000 births, they have to call in a specialist to determine whether this baby is male or female. Now, queer theorists are right that those people exist. And it's a real thing. It's rare, but exists. Now, they try to take that truth and twist it to make it support all these crazy queer theories and say that, therefore, gender is completely arbitrary. It's totally fluid, which is false. But as Christians, we can say, no, we have to actually be thoughtful enough to say our argument is that biological sex produces gender. Gender is the category we fit into, say, and then sex is the reality of who we are as male or female, XXYY chromosomes our secondary sex characteristics like facial hair. So biology produces these categories or these categories, male and female, are rooted in biological realities. Now, what does intersex do? Intersex conditions are people that don't really fit into those biological categories. So of course, then the social categories that they're in are also unclear. 
If the biology is unclear, the social category is unclear. It does not prove that queer theory is correct. But I think we can be thoughtful and say, well, what does it mean then to live in a fallen world in which intersex conditions do actually exist? So again, it's something that you can point out. We should think of those things as Christians, not just leave it all to queer theorists to expostulate and speculate about these ideas. On the other side of the break, what are the basic cultural and social insights of evangelical theology? Dr. Neil Shenby is our guest author of the book, Critical Dilemma. We're talking critical theory. The church's music from the second century. The 6th century. The 12th century. The 16th century. The 21st century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. It's written by Lutheran layman Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University. Martin Luther on Mental Health is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Solid. Serious. Substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. At the center of our campus is Kramer Chapel, and there's a reason for that. Issues Etc. guest Dr. Arthur Just. Because it is the heartbeat of Concordia Theological Seminary. It is where we go to hear the voice of Jesus and frequently be fed with the body and blood of Christ. We sometimes call it our Jerusalem. Kramer Chapel points to the classroom, which we sometimes call Athens. It is there that we do theology, biblical studies, systematic theology, practical theology, history. We love theology here, and we love the study of it, and we love coming together in worship. It's one of the things that gives us great joy, joy in worshiping, joy in studying theology. Concordia Theological Seminary is all about the joy of being in Jesus. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, ctsfw.edu. Dr. Neil Shemby is our guest. He's co-author of the new book, Critical Dilemma, 
the rise of critical theories and social justice ideology, implications for the church and society. We're talking critical theory. Dr. Shimpy, what are the basic cultural and social insights of biblical theology? So, you know, we have a whole chapter, chapter eight on the evangelical worldview. And so we just go through, I think, eight or nine core ideas within broadly evangelical thought. You could start with creation, say that God created the universe. God is holy and good and just, and we are made in his image. All human beings are. Then the second big idea would be the fall. We have all fallen. Adam and Eve fell into sin with the whole human race, and all of us rebelled against this holy God and therefore stand condemned. A third idea would be then that God is working to redeem people throughout history, that God has chose Israel, say, to, to be his people and to bring a knowledge of who he is into the world. There are ideas like God is a lawgiver. And so the law is not arbitrary. Even human laws, like don't, you know, murder laws aren't just free floating and arbitrary. They're rooted in God's commands, thou shalt not murder. So we don't have to view law as just this construct of straight white males who try to protect their privilege. No, law ought to be rooted in God's commands to humanity. So we go through like eight or nine of these core ideas, and then we apply them. We say, well, how does that apply then to something like a cultural issue like abortion? We'd say, well, if you recognize that God's our creator, every human being is made in God's image, and there has value and dignity. And if you recognize that one of God's first commands, and that one of the first commands broken was thou shalt not murder, that that's a central ethical premise that human life has value and we shouldn't murder. Well, then you have to be pro-life. You have to be deeply opposed to abortion. And that people want to say it's a, it's a political issue. Well, no, it's a theological issue. And so we, we just get, and the other, I think we go through opposition to abortion and also a Christian view of marriage and sexuality as it's deeply related to who we are as human beings who are made in God's image. And God has, as a lawgiver, given us rules for how we are to express our sexuality within marriage. So I think those are the two cultural hot button issues that we touch on. And yet we're pointing out that these are not just arbitrary culture war values. They're actually deeply rooted in Christian theology and have been around for 2,000 years. So we, we try to bring that out to we're mindful of non-Christians who will read this book because we wanted to give people both Christian and non-Christian introduction to these ideas of critical theory. But for non-Christians, we wanted to also say, hey, let's take a pause and make sure you are on the same page with regard to what Christianity actually teaches. So how does contemporary critical theory conflict basically with Christianity? I mean, at the most basic level, contemporary critical theory is functioning as a worldview. That means is it's a comprehensive coherent answer to the big questions of life, like who am I? What's my main problem in life? What's the solution to that problem? How do I interpret my own experiences? Where do I find truth? What is truth? Those are all big questions. And like any other worldview, critical theory answers those questions. And so right off the bat, you can't have two worldviews. They're going to be competing in terms of where you give your allegiance, where you spend your time and your resources, your talents and your money. And what we're seeing is that as people embrace the core ideas of contemporary critical theory, they have to release and let go of their Christian worldview. They're not compatible. You can't serve two masters. A second major problem is that critical theory tends to see all values and norms as the products of straight white men, or the products of the ruling class that are designed to justify their power. But Christianity says, no, fundamentally, 
some norms and values come from God. Not all. I mean, some some norms are evil. <laughs> some some expectations and cultural values are wrong. It must be corrected to be coherent with God's law. But there are some set of laws and rules that God's given us that are not merely human creations. Another major problem is contemporary critical theory's view of sexuality and gender. So critical theorists today do not see race, class, gender, and sexuality as separable topics. They see them as, as quote unquote, interlocking systems of oppression. So you cannot apply critical race theory to race alone. You can't. You must apply it to gender, to sexuality, to physical ability, to class. So right off the bat, if you're embracing the ideas of, say, critical race theory, they will tell you flat out, you must also be opposed to homophobia and transphobia. You must be pro-gay marriage. These are non-negotiable if you're really going to be an anti-racist. So that's just three off the top of my head, these fundamental conflicts between critical theory and Christianity. So the various manifestations of contemporary critical theory play upon an idea of collective guilt. What is that, and is it biblical? So one of the ways we've seen critical theory, or critical race theory more particularly, show up in the church is in discussions of collective ancestral guilt. And you'll see this in, in popular books like Be the Bridge, where there'll be almost offhanded comments about how whites are somehow guilty for the sins of white people in the past, slavery, Jim Crow, various expressions of racial hatred, and that because of that, they need to repent, lament these facts, these, these historical facts, and then be in a posture of constant deference towards people of color. And, and until that happens, until whites are willing to own those sins and repent of them and confess and seek to rectify them, there can be no real reconciliation or racial unity in the church. And we have a whole chapter devoted to showing why that is biblically not true. The fundamental question is, can the sins of people's ancestors be imputed to them so that they need to repent for those sins? And the answer in the Bible is, is for many reasons, no. In Ezekiel 18, it says explicitly that you will not count a son guilty for the sins of his father, nor will you count a son innocent for the righteousness of his father. It doesn't transmit from father to son, much less from great, 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 great grandfather to great, great, great grandchild, much less from some random white stranger living somewhere else that I'm not even related to, to some white person today. So that whole idea, ha it will deeply undermine righteous efforts within the church for racial unity. We, we ought to love one another across lines of race and ethnicity. Absolutely. But if you keep insisting that, well, you can't really be reconciled to your brother and sister in Christ until they repent for things they didn't do. That's a terrible, terrible approach to church. It's just false. The Bible says we were reconciled once for all through the blood of Christ. And now we are all together, all of us, we are brought together under the blood of Christ as brothers and sisters in the family of God. And of course, if I sin against someone today, then I have to repent and they have to forgive me. But no one's held accountable for the sins that were committed by someone else hundred years ago. It's not how God's moral law works. And we have a whole chapter arguing for that. You spoke earlier about queer theory. What is queer theory already doing in the Christian church? So you see in many places a growing acceptance of homosexuality and even transgenderism. The evangelical church, I think, is really wrestling right now with how to stay faithful to God's 
commands and statements in scripture and his revealed truth, and also to love our neighbors. And I think some people say, well, to really love your neighbor, you have to accept their identity, their sexuality, their felt gender identity. And what I would say is no, to really love anyone, our love has to be rooted in truth. So for example, some men and women, young men and women are anorexic. They truly believe that they are overweight. They need to lose weight, even though they're literally starving themselves to death. Now you might say, well, that's their self-identity. Should we just love them and affirm them in their anorexia? And the answer is absolutely not. In fact, it would be deeply unloving to conf- to affirm their own lie about themselves, their self, their delusion. We want to say, we love you because we love you. I'm not going to call you fatty. I'm not going to tell you to lose weight. I'm going to say, how can I help you to see that you are valuable, you are loved, and that you need to turn from this identity, which is killing you. That's true love. And I'm not saying then that we can therefore scream at people and yell at people and obviously externally (laughs) hate them. I'm saying we should express our love by telling them the truth and calling them to repentance and faith in Christ. And there's no dichotomy between doing that and loving your neighbor. That is loving your neighbor. On the other side of the break, what other ideas have the potential to devastate the Christian congregation when it comes to critical theory? Dr. Neil Shenby is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression issuesetc.org and enter your email address. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. We're supported by listeners like you. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth. Freedom, Vocation, Concordia University, Chicago, cuchicago.edu. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. Neil Shandy is our guest. We're talking critical theory. 
Dr. Shenvey, what other ideas of critical theories have the, at least the potential to devastate the Christian congregation? I mean, there's so many. One slogan that has been used before is whiteness is wickedness. Whiteness is wickedness. And now critical theory would redefine the word whiteness to mean something like white supremacy, white power. So they would use the word whiteness to encapsulate all the ways in which whites supposedly oppress people of color. And what I would say is that's not what the word whiteness means colloquially. They've redefined that word in a way that's at best confusing and at worst equivocal because they'll say whiteness is wickedness and therefore whites participate in whiteness and therefore they need to repent of their whiteness. <laughs> Which when you think about that now, they're equivocating because on the one hand, they'll say, we just mean this power structure that's oppressive and even people of color can be white adjacent and people of color can participate in whiteness. They'll say that. On the other hand, they'll turn to actual people with white skin, light colored skin and say, you, you, because of your skin color need to repent of your say white privilege or whatever. So that's a very, very toxic abuse of language. And it's a very terrible approach to racial unity again within the church. Obviously, another example would be the idea that sin is oppression. So I would affirm as a Christian that oppression defined biblically is sin. Cruelly abusing someone, being a tyrant, that's oppression. Well, that's sin. Of course it is. But it doesn't follow that therefore sin is oppression, meaning that all sin is a kind of oppression. I hear that. It sounds very obvious and true to people in a progressive era. And yet not all sin is oppression. For example, idolatry is a sin. Sexual immorality is a sin. Worshiping other gods is a sin. But those sins are oppressing anyone. They're not cruelly treating people. In fact, our society will often say, well, those sins aren't even sins. Those Those are fine things. But we have to recognize as Christians that sin can't be reduced to oppression. In fact, sin is primarily vertical. Sin is breaking God's law, not simply being unkind to other people. We've had to flip that priority in saying the worst sins are committed against other people. And, you know, committing sin against God's not a really big deal. It was Jesus said the first commandment, the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And then the second is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, they're both important, obviously, they're both from God, but the priority is important too. We begin by loving God supremely. And because of that, we will naturally, if we're in our right minds, love our neighbor. But we can't invert that order. How is every Christian being pulled along by these cultural forces, whether or not they know it? I mean, we live in culture, right? We consume culture. I mean, even the most ascetic person living in the desert has some contact with other people, hopefully. But most of us have everyday jobs. We have friends. We go to the grocery store. We watch TV or movies. We listen to music. And all of those things are just immersed in a particular worldview. And unless we're listening to a very great Christian station, which plays nothing but old school hymns, we're going to be unconsciously imbibing the assumptions of the culture. And increasingly, those assumptions are rooted in critical theory. By the way, I say this too. It's possible that you live in a deeply red county, a very conservative county, and you have a plethora, uh, all the people around you are evangelical Christians and all the radio stations and our Christian stations. So it's possible that 
you're being pulled along also by the, the current of your culture and your culture just happens to be more heavily influenced by Christianity. That's possible. But the point is you can't escape that. All of us are being tugged along. And to the extent that we participate in a mainstream American culture, the kind of things you see on network television, the kind of movies you see at the theater, then we're being pulled along by critical theory and its assumptions. And we have to resist that. What advice would you offer to Christians who are firmly anti-woke? So if you're firmly anti-woke, first, good, you should be. But secondly, I'd say be sensitive to the concerns that make these ideas so attractive to people. You be very careful about how you think rightly about race and class and gender. Because because you're Christian does not mean you're infallible. In fact, we should know more than anyone else that we are sinners too. So we should check ourselves and say, Is do I harbor racial resentment in my heart? Do I harbor misogyny in my heart? Do I harbor hatred of men in my heart? These are legitimate questions. We shouldn't brush them off and say, well, I'm anti-woke, I'm fine. No, you have the opposite danger of falling into sins like racism and sexism, say, and then ignoring those because you are firmly anti-woke. So we should be aware of that. We should also be totally willing to deal, engage with, and talk truthfully about our nation's racial history and other forms of injustice that have been portrayed throughout the centuries. This nation, the U.S., is not sinless or guiltless. Jesus is, but we're not. Human beings are sinners, and this country's history is littered with terrible injustices. We can say that. We can admit that and be honest about that without saying that somehow, therefore, we're all awful and we need to repent of things we didn't do. We can say, hey, this nation, like all nations, is under God's judgment. It's not eternal, but God's kingdom is. And then finally, we really stress the need for dialogue. One of the reasons that these ideas are finding a foothold in the church and in society is they never withstand scrutiny. No one ever expects you to defend them in public. You can just ignore all their interlocutors and just pawn them off as if they're common sense. We think dialogue's the key to undermining that. We, we want people to, to come out in front of like a big group and actually defend these ideas and then have Christians and say, hey, this is where these ideas are antithetical to the Bible. Uh, that can happen in a public setting, that can happen in a church dialogue, but getting people talking is important to getting them thinking critically. And this, all this dialogue happens in front of an open Bible if you're Christians and say, which of these ideas are biblical and which are not? I think that's a great way to undermine the appeal of critical theory. Just hold it up to the Bible. Dr. Shemby, you have a bachelor's degree in, in chemistry from Princeton and a PhD in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley. Have even the hard sciences been infiltrated by critical theory? Depends what sense you mean. The hard sciences are pretty immune to critical theory because scientists generally accept a modernist view of reality. Reality is actually there. Reality is not merely about discourses and ways of talking. There's actually objective truth out there. You can discover it through science, through experimentation, through observation. You don't have to just rely on your lived experiences and your social location. So in that sense, things like chemistry, biology, engineering, physics, these things are resistant to the core assumptions of critical theory, which are often rooted, at least in part, in postmodernism. On the other hand, all science fields and all companies have HR departments <laughs> and administration and education, people are doing science education. And I would argue that critical theory does control, say, science education. It does control human resources. It does control administrations. And so you are seeing departments, even in the hard sciences, 
knuckle under to fall under this DEI regime, which has, of course, embraced the ideas of critical theory. So I would not say that scientists should be nonchalant. Oh, we're fine. This won't affect us. I'm a physicist. That's very naive. It will definitely affect you in funding, in tenure, in a myriad of ways. So be aware and be careful. What do you mean when you say that we should not strive to be culture warriors? Well, I don't think I would say don't be a culture warrior at all. But I would say you have to prioritize God's kingdom first and the spiritual aspect of God's kingdom first. Prioritize. I'm not saying don't get involved in the culture wars. A lot of the culture wars are simply trying to express God's commands and insist that we should live righteous lives in public and that our laws should be righteous. Those are all great things. I mean, you wouldn't tell someone in 1860s U.S. who's fighting for abolition Oh, don't be a culture warrior. No, you'd say that's great. It's good that we should be fighting against the abomination of slavery. But in the same way, you also wouldn't want them to ignore spiritual reality only for the sake of anything political. You want them to prioritize the spiritual because you prioritize the spiritual. You then also care about things God cares about, which are just laws. So I just say that I would start with the local church, start with getting these ideas out of the local church, and then from there, go on to try and change the culture, but just prioritize God's kingdom in the local church over your involvement in politics. Dr. Neil Shenvey is a married father of four children. He has a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Princeton and a PhD in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley. He's a Challenge 3 teacher with Classical Conversations and co-author of the new book, Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. You'll find a link to this book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Shenby, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Up next, an Issues Etc. Encore, Praying the Psalms with Pastor Will Whedon, host of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay with us. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. 
Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. This is Molly Hemingway, encouraging you to listen to my favorite podcast, Issues, Etc. Every day you get in-depth interviews with host Todd Wilkin asking expert guests substantive, thought-provoking questions on all of the important news and issues of our day. The expert guests are in culture, law, ethics, philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Expert guests, expansive topics, always extolling Christ, issues, etc. Do you dread going to work out? Performance Fitness in Edwardsville offers a fun, supportive, tight-knit community and environment. Visit them on the web at performancefitness618.com or call 618-692-5063. Performance Fitness is the facility in the St. Louis Metro East where the focus is on member results, not membership numbers. 618-692-5063 or performancefitness618.com. Performance Fitness of Edwardsville. This is Jeff Schwartz, General Manager of Lutheran Public Radio, with a message for listeners in the Mountain and Pacific time zones. We pledge to have Issues Etc. podcasts posted daily, no later than 5 p.m. Mountain, 4 p.m. Pacific. This will allow you to download and listen to the latest Issues Etc. podcast weekdays during your evening commute. Again, if you live in the Mountain or Pacific time zone, Download Issues Etc. before you leave work and listen during your drive home. Issues Etc. is listener supported. We rely on you for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Now, if you appreciate Issues Etc., please consider making a tax-deductible gift today. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. You can also donate by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc., and send it to Issues Etc., Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. And thanks for your support.